Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. This is The Longest Shortest Time from WNYC. I'm Hillary Frank. Welcome to everyone who found our show through our last episode, Should I Be a Parent? The feedback we've been hearing from you has been just tremendous. And I know that many of you are still no closer today to figuring out whether or not you want kids than you were a couple weeks ago. We hope that listening to our show and talking with people through our blog and Facebook groups will help get you closer to your decision. Now, whether you're on the fence or not, here's something about parenthood that I know to be true. Kids ask crazy questions. The questions can be hilarious. They can be invasive. They can give you the creeps. But no matter what, they just don't stop. My kids' questions for the last year or so have focused pretty much on one thing. Death. Most kids go through a death phase, even the happiest ones. So I thought I'd call up someone who could actually answer their questions. Hi, Hillary. How are you? Nervous and excited, totally normal things. This is Sarah Troop. She's the executive director of a group called the Order of the Good Death. Their members are morticians and funeral directors, and also academics and artists who deal with death in their work. Their mission is to normalize death for the rest of us. You may know their great video series, Ask a Mortician. Sarah is the person who researches answers for those videos. She also has her own blog about death rituals and food. It's called Nourishing Death. Plus, she's taking classes on forensic science, just for fun. Today, we are so lucky to have Sarah Troop with us to answer your kids' questions about death. She is an expert on this topic. And for the purposes of our show, she has an added superpower. For over a decade, she taught preschool and kindergarten, which of course is the age when death questions begin. Stay with us. So we took some questions from our audience, and I'm going to play some of them for you. Okay. Um, so, so let's listen to the first clip. What's your name? Henrietta Rose Cohen. And how old are you? Um, four and three quarters. And where do you live? In New York. <laughs> In New York. And what is your question about death? Um, how people get old and die and turn to dirt. How's that all work? So, um, little Henrietta wants to know how all of this works, how people die and turn to dirt. How do you explain the physical process of death to a young child like Henrietta? 
really important with younger children. So, you know, even eight and under, but definitely six and under, they just don't have the tools that they need to be able to imaginatively picture the things that we're explaining. So I find that it helps a lot to find something that they can experience, that they have a life experience with, or that you can do with them that they can understand what that is. So I would say something like what happens to our bodies actually looks a lot like what happens to a flower. It grows and it blooms and it becomes a big, beautiful flower. And it stays like this for a while, enjoying the sun and the wind and the water and all the little bugs it visit. But then slowly and slowly as the days pass, the flower gets smaller and smaller. You can start to see the flower begin to bend its head and some of the petals fall off and change color, just like our hair falls out when we get older. Now, your body can actually become many, many different things after you die. You could be a flower or a tree. Some people become part of the ocean or the wind traveling through the trees if you choose something like cremation, for example. But some people can even become diamonds. How do you become diamonds? There are companies out there that if you are cremated, you can facilitate sending them some of those cremains. And they have a process that will actually create a diamond out of those remains. And they'll make it into a ring or a necklace or whatever you want. And you can carry your loved one like that. So there are all kinds of incredible options out there like diamonds. Or you can hire a company to shoot your remains up into space. This is making me think of a couple of things. One is that I know young children, probably all children, like to feel in control of things. And I can imagine this being very helpful. Oh, my gosh. I also think um, this sounds a lot like it sounds like you're describing like the story in a a children's book, like like uh, just the creativity of possibility. I was an early childhood teacher for many, many years. Yeah. So what what age did you teach? I taught three to six, six and a half. I understand that that you would do um, some things in the class to help kids um, learn about death at that age. What what did you do? So, you know, we played outside a lot in my classroom and the children were constantly encountering, you know, maybe there was a dead squirrel or a bird or something that we would have to take care of. So, you know, very reverently taking the creature and asking the children, you know, how do we want to bury him? Oh, somebody came up with the suggestion of flowers. So, oh, that's lovely. You may go and find some flowers. Oh, I would like to give him, you know, something from my lunch basket. Oh, very good. You may go and fetch it and bring it. And perhaps a child suggests we sing a song, things like that, that they have their own input into the experience. And then maybe the next day or later on or a few weeks from now, you draw the bird a picture and you come and bring it and visit it. You can still engage with the animal or that experience of death, but also telling stories and fairy tales. You know, most of our stories, even um, popular things like Cinderella or Snow White, these all have an element of death 
and sharing those stories and telling them as they were written uh, can be a really helpful thing as well. And what was the outcome of that when you were being so direct with kids and having basically like animal funerals with your class? They were very satisfied and very peaceful with it. Everyone wanted to be involved. It would be talked about for sometimes, you know, if I had kids in my class for a couple of years, they would remember Miss Sarah when we buried that squirrel, but it evoked this relationship or this memory of this relationship where death wasn't, it didn't have horrible things attached to it at the time. And so we can begin to ease them into this relationship. I also wonder, um, a lot of parents, I think, um, with good intentions, uh, use sleeping as a euphemism for death, especially like if a pet dies and kids want to know what happened and they they say, um, well, you know, the dog is asleep. What what are your thoughts on that? That euphemism has been around for centuries. You'll find it on epitaphs, written in books. It's everywhere. And it's worked for some people, but... I would really hesitate to use it because then it can develop this fear of sleep. Oh my gosh, if I fall asleep or my dog falls asleep or my dad falls asleep, they're not going to wake up. So that may not be the best choice, but for really, really young ones, if it comes from them, say like, If a two-year-old with very limited life experience kind of comes up with that themselves, that, oh, grandma's sleeping or that the dog is sleeping, just leave that for now. What, What age do you think it's appropriate to start talking about the truth? Depending on your individual child, four, five, six year olds especially can grasp some pretty complex ideas. But you, again, you want to be careful and remember that, you know, children are not little adults. They don't quite know that much. So let's turn to um, our next clip. Okay. My name is Jessica. I live in San Diego, California. And it seems as if my son has been afraid of death since he was about two and a half, which at the time felt really young to me. We hadn't lost any family members. We didn't have any pets that died. It was as if he learned what death was overnight and decided that it was something he was really, really afraid of. And now he's five, and he talks about it all the time, so much that it keeps him up at night. We'll be sitting in the living room after we've put him to bed, and he'll come out, and he's crying and visibly shaken and tells us that he can't stop thinking about death. He describes thinking about death as the dark place and that he can't get back to the light He asks all the time, what will happen to me? What will happen to you and dad? And we are not a religious family, so we tell him that nobody knows what happens when you die. But what is the truth is that he doesn't have to worry about it for a really long time, that he's safe, that mom and dad are here with him. And sometimes it works and most times it doesn't. And I just don't know how to lead him through this. It seems like it's something that he's not growing out of. And as far as I understand it, it might only get worse as he gets older. How can I help him? So, Sarah, this totally hit home for me, this this mm-hmm. question. Um, so first I'm wondering, um, how common is it to be obsessed with death as a preschooler? 
let's say in a class of maybe like 27 kids that I have, I'll occasionally have one that's pretty death-centric or talks about it all the time. Um, So what I would do in this case is first start to kind of create a meaningful experiences, beautiful experiences in the dark or with darkness. So whether that's kind of exploring your own neighborhood, going for a walk at night, or if you have a yard that you can hang out in at night, the different bugs that come out and the animals or night blooming flowers, sounds that kind of come alive at night and experience those and appreciate those. Go outside and have your dessert there. Um, Look at the night sky. Go inside and play a game in the dark by candlelight or with lanterns. Make shadow puppets, you know, with your hands at bedtime. You guys can, you can lay down with your child and make their room dark. And instead of telling a regular bedtime story out of a book or one that you are um, telling yourself, is you can both make something up. But it's starting to create these positive experiences and memories that are associated with darkness. So, you know, I'm often sort of like taken by surprise by some of the questions my daughter has. They'll sort of seem to come out of the blue. Um, So I'm going to tell you some of the kinds of questions that, that I get asked and see if you have a suggestion, because usually I'm just kind of like, I don't know, I don't know what to say. Um, so, so there are things like, um, how many ways are there to die? Um, and if I say like, I don't, I don't know, um, she'll say, no, let's count them. And she'll start counting, you know, like oh, being my. shot with a gun, getting old, you know, and the list goes on. Um, she asks when I'm going to die. She asks when she's going to die. And I wonder if this is all um, this next next question might sum it all up, really. And she asks, um, will we be buried next to each other? Um, so how would you approach answering big barrages of questions like this? So something parents should know is that when, especially like around three years old and four years old, you get the barrage of why. And then you answer the question and it's just why? Why? Well, Why? is that it's not always the child wants to hear an explanation or an answer. What they want or what they're really asking for is this human response, this human reaction with you rather than the explanation. And then the other thing is, you know, we get caught up with really young children too in feeling that we have to answer everything or explain everything to them. And something that I would probably say more than anything else in my classroom is, you know, a child would come with a question and I would pause and look at them and say, you know, I wonder. And it begins to leave, you know, create this space for them to not only answer their own questions, but, you know, we're constantly inputting or downloading information into them. And we don't often think about creating the space for them to fill. But if you don't know the answer, there is nothing wrong with saying, you know, I wonder. 
And let me say that they almost always answer their own questions. So if you say, I wonder, give it a few beats, they almost always answer their own questions. Coming up, Sarah talks about what to do when your fears come true and there's an actual death. Don't go away. Hey, everybody. We are gearing up to do another round of sex advice for parents. And this time, it's going to be live. On Tuesday, October 6th, I'll be joined by Tawana Hines, also known as the Funky Brown Chick, and Dr. Hilda Hutcherson at WNYC's Green Space. Tickets will be available soon. But for now, we are taking your questions. You can call them in from anywhere using our Longest Shortest Time app. Just download the app and click Talk. And if you don't have an iPhone, you can send us your question by email. Just record a voice memo with your name, location, and your question, and send it to hello at longestshortesttime.com with the subject, advice. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. We are back with your kids' questions about death. My name is Erin, and I am here with my seven-year-old son, Bryce. And we live in Temecula, California. Do you have any questions about death? I have a question um, because... When you die, um, it's like the Book of Life movie, or um, it's like a big room of um, like 5,000 beds. So you're trying to figure out what it's like when you die? Like where you go? Mm-hmm. How old were you when Dad died? Like three. Yeah. How does it make you feel? Um, sad. Sad? Why does it make you feel sad? Um, because it's scary when you die. First of all, you know, we've been talking about, like, theoreticals, mostly, um, you know, when people might die, you know, getting older and dying. Here's a situation where a little boy's father actually did die, What ideas do you have about um, talking about loss in a family, particularly when um, the partner who who lost their parenting partner is also grieving? You're never going to get over something like that. Grief is just something that stays with you and kind of becomes a part of your life and who you are. Um, So getting over it, you hear that a lot, like grief is something that we have to get over. Um, it's just not something that happens. 
Um, so I think what we can do for the child, as difficult as it is for a parent who's grieving along and going through their own feelings of immense, just incredible loss, is we want to create for the child as much as possible this sense of warmth, because that's what they're going to be missing from the person that they lost. And what I mean with by this sense of warmth is, you know, when you meet somebody and you just feel comfortable with them. We describe people as they were so warm and welcoming. They put you at ease, right? Mm -hmm. This quality of warmth, it's a quality of love. And so if we can consciously do things for the child that imbues his surroundings with this sense of warmth, so creating spaces with them, holding them more, you know, having blankets on them, making beautiful um, dinners together, things like that, things that are nurturing, making them a bath, making them a cup of tea before bed. These little gestures where we're not talking through everything all the time creates that sense of being loved and cared for try and fill that child's life and space with as much love and warmth as possible since they are for time going to be missing that person and that love that they had formerly filled that space with. So, you know, we did a call for kids questions about death and we got some great ones. But we also got some questions from grown-ups, and I'm going to play one of them because it's something we hear a lot from our listeners. And I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to play Sarah this question. Hi, my name is Chelsea, and I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My question is, one of my best friends is going through a pretty awful miscarriage after trying for months to get pregnant. I want to do something nice for her, as I know this is really painful. Problem is, we live on opposite sides of the country. Any suggestions on what I can do or say to help make this process any easier for her and to let her know she's loved and I'm thinking of her? So we receive just so many emails um, from people asking how to support their friends in miscarriage. Um, And in this particular situation, um, Chelsea lives far away from her friend. Um, How do you suggest um, that Chelsea can be there for her friend? So I think it's really important to acknowledge it. I think a lot of people have the experience of their loss being like, like it didn't even happen. People ignore it. Um, and, and it's not out of, um, you know, out of anything mean. It's just because of our own society and our own personal discomfort with death. We don't know what to say, or we are so afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing that we do nothing. You should know about grieving people too, is that even the most dependable, responsive individual can change. They can go silent, break dates, kind of act flaky after a loss. Don't take it personally, but it can be really overwhelming to interact with the world. So just keep texting or emailing, even with a simple, I'm thinking of you and sending love. And that's it. 
And on the flip side, there are so many things that we want to be conscious of not saying to. Things that maybe aren't the best to say are like, oh, you know, it's okay, you can try again, or it being God's plan for you. Those may be your beliefs, and that's great, but those things can be hurtful too. Um, and send something tangible through the mail, a letter, a book. Um, if your friend maybe lives in an area where food can be delivered and you can afford it, food is actually a huge help. Um, the emotions that are actually tied to death or loss trigger our fight or flight instinct. And even though a lot of us feel after a loss, like the last thing you want to do is eat, eating really helps because it counteracts this by sending a message to the brain that says, oh, hey, I'm eating delicious foods. So this must mean I'm safe and not in danger. But for those of you that are closer in proximity to your friends, having visitors is not always the best thing. So text or call or send an email first. But, you know, you can leave a note and a flower on the doorstep or do the grocery shopping because going out into the world is kind of like a landmine when you're going through a loss. Um, especially places like the grocery store, I find, is really difficult for a lot of people um, because their eating habits have changed. So, for example, if it's a miscarriage, you will probably eating maybe a little bit better or differently. And I know a lot of women who, as part of their grief and loss experience, is that it's very difficult for them to change their diet or go back to their pre-pregnancy diet because that's admitting that, you know, just a further step away from the hope and the dream and the baby. Sarah's actually speaking from experience here. A couple years ago, she lost a pregnancy of her own. She actually had to terminate the pregnancy because the baby was diagnosed with a fatal condition. There were only a couple people that I talked to about this. And the reason why is because my experience with talking to others about it was so incredibly negative. So it terrifies me to have this conversation right now. Um, I'm afraid that people aren't going to speak to me anymore after this. What is that fear about? Because it's so uncomfortable, it, people don't know how to talk about it or address it. I got invited to a launch party um, for an organization that is part of the deaf community. And the people that were invited to be in attendance were all people that had had like a huge loss, someone very significantly close to them. So for most of them, it was their partner or their parent. And they had name tags created. And you wrote down, instead of what is your name, or my name is Sarah, um, it said, ask me about, with the blank space to write that person's name or their role in your life. So ask me about my mother or ask me about 
Joseph or whoever that significant person was to you. And I really, really thought about it and I hesitated. And I'm like, okay, this is the deaf community. This is my people. They're going to get me. I'm going to be understood. Um, So I'm going to write my child on my tag. And I wrote it on my tag and I, I put it on my dress and I walked in. And for the couple hours that I was there, no one spoke to me. Like they looked at me, like the eye contact or the smile, and their eyes would kind of dart down to my tag. And there would be complete aversion. Um, What do you think that was about? I mean, these are supposed to be people who were used to talking about death. I really think as, as superstitious and illogical as it is, that some people really believe that by talking about these things, they will actually bring death upon themselves. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that happened to you. That sounds really difficult. Thank you. But I think a lot of people find their, that it's a common experience that your friends and people you thought would be there during a loss begin to fall away and become a little bit more distant because they don't know what to do. Um, You've done a lot of thinking about death um, over the years. And I wonder, um, what are your own death wishes? I would really have the plan of donating my body to science. There's um, a university in Tennessee in particular that has a place called Body Farm. And they use their cadavers that are donated to learn about decomposition under different circumstances. And the donations there have helped solve crimes. They've helped families find closure and find answers. And to be able to advance science and to also give some kind of gift like that to a family who is grieving like that from a loss like that, that's what I would want to do is continue to give and teach even after I'm dead. Sarah Troop is the executive director of the Order of the Good Death. Find them at orderofthegooddeath.com. I think Sarah did a remarkable service today by answering our questions and sharing her personal experience. And if her story spoke to you or if you have any kind of loss you'd like to share with her, please think of our website as a space to continue this conversation. Go to longestshortesttime.com and leave a comment on the post for this episode. That's episode 65. And remember, if you're feeling overwhelmed by your own anxiety or your kid's anxiety, there are plenty of professionals out there who can help you. We have some resources listed on our website, and you can add yours in the comments, too. Also, please remember to subscribe to our show on iTunes, even if that's not how you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, rate us and write us a review. Seriously, please go do this right now while it's on your mind. This stuff helps us to climb the iTunes charts, and it makes it easier for other people to find the show.
This podcast is a production of The Longest Shortest Time and WNYC. The show is produced by me, Hilary Frank, and Joanna Solitaroff with help from Ellen Mayer. Bill Moss mixed the show. Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. Special thanks to Paula Schumann, Peter Clowney, Irene Trudell, and to Caitlin Doty, who founded The Order of the Good Death and recommended that we talk to Sarah for today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode in two weeks at three o'clock in the morning. We are here always to keep you company in those wee hours. But if you're not up then, don't worry. You can get the podcast at a reasonable time. Just subscribe to our newsletter. Go to the website, enter your email in that little box there on the homepage, and I'll send you a secret link six hours earlier than the show gets posted. And here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want you on our show. So pitch us your stories. Your story can be anything about your relationship with your kids or your relationship with your parents. Most of all, we love to hear things we've never heard before. So surprise us. Go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.